Hello and welcome to Cloud9Fin, a podcast on all things leverage finance. We follow corporate debt from issuance to redemption, credits from performing to distressed, and everything in between. I'm Sammy Cole, your host in London, and first up this week, we're recapping the top headlines in Europe. After a strong few days for primary, deal flow has more or less ground to a halt this week, largely because of several bank holidays. But there's a lot going on in the distressed debt market. French retailer Casino is the next big restructuring in France, with 9 billion euros of debt. It has kicked off talks with creditors as it has two competing offers on the table to recapitalise its balance sheet. It's asked them to approve a conciliation process to discuss these options. Editor Chris Haffenden and analyst Denise Stoyanova held a webinar last week to go over this. And you can watch it back on ninefin.com if you didn't get a chance to listen in. Also in France, facilities management company Italian confirmed it is working with advisors on its refinancing plan during an earnings call last Friday. The company aims to refinance its 2024 notes by 28th of February 2024, which is less than three months before its maturity. In other news, US spandex manufacturer Lycra made an announcement during the bank holiday Monday that it had completed the refinancing of its 250 million euro notes at the last minute on the day of its maturity. It managed to privately place 300 million euros to repay the notes, but it came with a heftier price tag of 16%. Another interesting aspect of the transaction is that the company is planning to move some of its intellectual property assets away from the restricted group, which strips the security away from its other outstanding 704 million 2025 notes. The company said it plans to use those assets to secure the new notes instead. Next up, we've got a discussion about Ben Taylor, the German automotive and industrial supplier. And to tell us more about this credit, here's Josh Latham, one of our senior credit analysts. Thanks so much for joining me, Josh. Yeah, thanks for having me, Sammy. So Ben Taylor did its debut bond deal last week, but I read in your credit quick take that Ben Taylor has a track record of distress. So could you give me a brief overview of the company and the risks it's facing? Yeah, not a problem. So firstly, I think it's fair to say that Bain Taylor isn't the most straightforward credit. It's two quite distinct segments, around 80% of revenues generated through the automotive division, um, which supplies modules and components to the original equipment manufacturers. And then the remaining revenue is generated through this sort of steel tube business, which supplies the energy, automotive and industrial sectors. Um, so I think the first glaring issue here is the group's exposure to cyclical end markets. With the group serving automotive clients, as well as oil and gas firms, you can see how the changes in supply and demand dynamics might have a material impact on Ben Taylor's financial performance. Now, I guess the next next risk I must mention is to do with margins. So compared to peers, Ben Taylor's automotive segment has very low margins. Uh, I think it was around 6% which compares to mid to high double digits with some European automotive suppliers. But I guess at the same time, the the steel tube business is currently benefiting from a boom in the energy sector, which you could say drove a large portion of profitability in 2022. However, if you look into the past, you'll find the margins of the steel tube business has also been very volatile. I mean, in 2019 alone, they had negative gross margins. I guess there is a bull case here, where you could imagine Ben Taylor benefiting from increased oil and gas company spending. Uh, And then there's also the infrastructure bill in the United States, which could drive demand for their products even more over the next few years. But yeah, I guess, as I was saying, there's still some still an underlying risk of a low margin automotive segment and then a highly volatile steel and tube business. Okay, so loads of interesting dynamics in this credit. And I know you also did a financial quick take. 
which kind of took a deeper dive into the company's financials. Could you tell me a little bit more about what you uncovered there? Yeah, I guess we've been producing these financial quick takes uh, on an ad hoc basis. I guess it gives us a chance to do a deeper dive into the financials of a primary issuance and we'll get that out to our subscribers before the deal is even priced. Um, so with the Bain Taylor financial quick take, we discovered or uncovered some interesting things. So firstly, we found that the gross profit was heavily inflated by over 350 million euros in 2022. Now, this was due to certain write-backs, which basically related to the decision to cancel the sale of a steel tube plant. So this is therefore more of an accounting policy and not really a cash inflow. So when we modeled the group's earnings out on a normalized basis, we found the group's gross margin dropped to single digits and we actually expect them to generate negative free cash flow in 2023. I think this leads us quite nicely onto my second point, which is looking into cash generation post refinancing or levered free cash flow. So in this high interest rate environment, we've been paying close attention to borrowers' ability to generate cash. Now they have to pay this higher interest expense. In the case of Ben Taylor, we found the group would be paying over 180 million interest costs per year post-refinancing, which also includes the expensive secured notes, but also this amortizing term loan, which features in the capital structure. So ultimately, despite a healthy dose of skepticism, these bonds did manage to price, although they came at a pretty high cost. The dollar notes priced with a 10.5% yield and the euros bonds had a low to mid 9% on the euros. This is obviously very high for a double BB issuer. So who do you think got it wrong? The market or the rating agencies? Yeah, I, I guess that's a really good question. So firstly, I'd say bringing new credits to the market this time of the cycle was never going to be easy. So the fact that it did price is definitely a positive for primary. Now, when we first looked at the relative value for Bain Taylor, we did decide to look beyond the ratings and included some single B peers uh, into our charting. Interestingly, this guided a five-year note to price around a 6% yield. But when we heard the initial price talk on the euros to be in the mid to high nines range, we realized this would imply a premium of over 300 basis points versus peers, which is, I guess, huge. So when our team eventually sat down to discuss the relative value, we also took into account the risk mentions earlier and also the group's checkered history. We therefore thought the pricing might be influenced slightly by the financial restriction, which happened not so long ago. I guess we took a leaf out of Travel Lodge's book, which recently came to market, and we found that their pricing of the bonds might have had a certain premium for having restriction history. But then again, the deal also was the first sterling issuance we've seen in a while, and it also has a, a sort of complex business model. So I guess when you bundle in um, I'm moving back to Bain Taylor. When you bundle in the group's risk profile, its restructuring history, and the lack of financial disclosure, you can see why the market prices these notes with such a chunky yield. Mm -hmm. So interesting about how Ben Taylor's restructuring history had such an impact on the deal. Thank you so much for being on the pod today, Josh. That was super interesting. Grand, thank you very much for having me. All right, moving on. We've got our very first segment on private credit with our private credit editor, Josie Shillito. Thanks so much for joining me, Josie. Thank you. So today we're going to be talking about the concept of private take privates. And this is where a sponsor will take a company off public markets and into private ownership. You also recently did uh, nine questions on the topic with Mike Dennis from Aries. Could you tell me a little bit more about what you talked about. Sure. Well, I'll explain first of all what a, a take private is. Uh, the normal passage of company growth, as far as you can say there's a normal one, would be for a company to actually go public in a way to realize value. 
But it can go in the other direction. So a publicly listed company, a company listed on the stock market, can go into private ownership. This is happening a bit more at the moment because of the sell-off in the public markets. Now, there's an opportunity here for private credit because the private credit can back the purchase of the company by a private equity sponsor. Interesting. And so what are the key challenges for private credit funds in these kinds of deals, would you say? It's not an easy transaction in terms of the gamut of transactions that private credit funds can do. Um, Why is that? Well, I mean, Take Private is dealing with a, a public company, so there's a lot of secrecy involved. There are a lot of rules around what can be communicated and how it can be communicated to, to minimize market volatility. And there's additionally a cash commitment that has to be made and honored. And in order to do that, the private credit fund needs to, to have a lot of cash reserves and be able to move in a very agile manner. And thirdly, just a familiarity with the process, coming to it completely green wouldn't necessarily work. Um, you know, the sponsor will want a private credit fund that has experience of taking companies private in order so that it can carry out all the necessary due diligence and to to carry out the transactions under the secrecy required uh, to do a take private. Gotcha. And so why do you think this is a notable trend? Is it how is it different to the kinds of deals that have happened in the past? It's um it's it's quite a notable trend at the moment because um Private equity sponsors are, are, are typically not agreeing on valuations of companies. So mm-hmm. the seller will want a certain price, the buyer will want another price, uh, there's a standoff and uh, deals simply aren't closing. However, if you look to the public markets for opportunities, you've got quite a big sell-off um, and you've got companies there that are really rather good value and a bit of a bargain. And if you're able to take it private, then you're getting a, a, a good asset at a lower price than you might get it at any other time. Now, if you can abide by the rules of takeovers, um, one of those being the rule of six, um, so you you only talk to six parties ahead of making an offer, then you can do it with the utmost secrecy. And that's where private credit helps as well, because private credit is often a bilateral relationship. You need to talk to only one financing party. You don't need to talk to five banks. You don't need that underwriting. And frankly, they don't have a lot of choice. Banks are not underwriting. So there obviously are a lot of advantages to choosing private credit to finance a type take private. Do you expect this theme to continue throughout 2023? Yeah, it is expected to continue, both in the US and in Europe. Uh, There's slightly different dynamics at play between both markets. The US market tends to be uh, a lot larger number of larger funds, and their reserves are are larger uh, in proportion to, to that particular market. In Europe, you've got a slightly lumpier kind of uh, situation. I think there was a study done recently by Arkmont, which said that only seven managers in Europe, um, which is only about 4% of the managers in the market, have assets under management of over $10 uh, billion. Mm-hmm. But these managers count for about 40% of the total capital. So what that means in reality is this you know, kind of a handful of funds that can really have that depth of capital and agility to do take private in Europe, which of course benefits the funds who can do it very, very well. Okay, interesting. Thank you so much, Josie. It was great to have you on. (laughs) Uh, Thank you very much for having me. Now it's time for the Please Raise Responsibly segment of the podcast. I'm sat here with Jennifer Munnings, a fellow ESG analyst here at Ninefin. Hi, Sammy. Thanks for having me. Today, we will be discussing the recent clarifications from the European Commission on the Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulation, also known as the SFDR. Some market participants have praised these clarifications, but others have been quite critical of them. Exactly. So first off, I think it's worth introducing the SFDR regulation. Would you mind giving a brief overview? 
Yes, of course. So the SFDR stands for Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulation, and it imposes mandatory disclosure requirements for all financial market participants in the EU. All FMPs have to classify their funds either as Article 6, no sustainability considerations at all, Article 8, investments with some sustainability characteristics, and Article 9, funds that have sustainable investment as their objective. So the main aim of this regulation is to eliminate greenwashing through transparent disclosure and also to direct more capital towards businesses that are sustainable and sustainable opportunities. But in reality so far, the SFDR has caused widespread chaos in the financial sector, right? Yes, exactly. The main issue over the past year has been that the definition of sustainable investment has been interpreted very differently across the market. Following this confusion, the EU Commission provided feedback highlighting that all underlying assets of an Article 9 fund must qualify as a sustainable investment. This has led to thousands of fund downgrades from Article 9 to Article 8 over the past year, and there remained considerable confusion about the exact requirements for Article 9 funds. But just recently, the EU Commission provided further clarification on this matter. Yes, so these clarifications from the EU Commission highlight that it is entirely up to FMPs to define sustainable investment themselves. The only criteria is that these investments fulfill the three tests, one of contributing to an environmental or social objective, two of not causing significant harm to other objectives, and three of meeting good governance practices. Yeah, exactly. So essentially, a sustainable investment is whatever investors say it is. Essentially, as long as investors can make a case as to why a fund fulfills the three tests, they can in theory be classified as sustainable investment. This may hold true even for industries that you might think are obviously not sustainable, like defense, for example. Exactly. And some market participants are not happy. Many believe that this clarification has gone against the overall market sentiment that Article 9 funds are predominantly impact funds. And as a result, some people believe that investment firms could use this freedom to interpret sustainable investment as broadly as they can. Most business activities can contribute to environmental or social objectives. And what counts as significant harm is also very up to interpretation. Exactly. But despite that, some market participants have welcomed the clarifications with a sense of almost relief and in fact have found the broad definitions in the SFDR quite helpful. The clarification provides fund managers with a certain level of freedom in defining a sustainable investment. Although the broad definition of a sustainable investment reduces the regulatory risk for fund managers, there are still significant legal and reputational risks associated with greenwashing. I think it really highlights the fears that more restrictive definitions would only lead to more funds being downgraded. Yes, this is also true. The SFDR was never intended to be a labeling regime and instead a disclosure regime. My only worry is that a lack of clear guidelines will end up causing even more confusion, especially if definitions of sustainable investment under the SFDR are contradictory to the EU taxonomy. Well, I guess we'll have to just wait and see what happens next. Maybe there'll be a mass of funds re-upgrading back to Article 9, or maybe this freedom will pave the way for more inventive Article 9 funds. Exactly. All will be revealed in time. Thank you so much for being on the pod today, Jen. Thanks for having me. Okay, well, that's all we've got time for this week. Thanks for tuning in and please let us know if you have any feedback. You can reach us anytime by emailing team at ninefin.com. Check in next week to hear the latest on US markets with our colleague Will Cager-Smith and we'll be back the week after that. See you then.